All right, welcome back to the podcast, friends, and this is episode 101, and I'm excited for you to meet Dr. Courtney Sierra Vaughn. Oh, I hope I said your name correctly. I just realized I never asked you how to pronounce that. Anyway, uh, this is a great episode. She is the Director of International Programming for Free the Girls. It's a nonprofit uh, ministry that helps women who are coming out of sex trafficking to reintegrate into the community and to become self-supporting. Uh, they, they're not involved in the rescuing aspect of it as much as they are the integrating aspect of it. And anyway, she's just a lot of fun to interview. But I need to give you a heads up because I tried a new platform and it was terrible. There was, I don't know, there was some kind of interference, electrical interference going on. So I have done my best to clean this episode up so that uh, you can listen without having a bunch of junk coming at you. The content is so good and she is just fun to listen to. So I really think you will uh, enjoy it. Check out the show notes. There's links to, to Free the Girls and also to her social media. Anyway, I'm getting ready to have some surgery, so I'm going to be taking a break for a little bit. Probably won't see an episode for a little while, but hey, you can always go back and listen to some of the old ones. There's some good ones uh, on there over the last couple of years. And shoot me a DM if there's somebody that you specifically would like me to have on the podcast. All right, have a great week and enjoy the episode. We've been trying to tell better stories about women and clergy and the church because we really need to tell better stories. Instead of just complaining about it, what if we flood the airwaves with something different? Welcome. Welcome to the podcast. And I'm so glad that you could be here. And where are you? Uh, where are you joining me from? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. I am joining you from Northeast Tennessee. To meet at the Wesleyan Holiness Women Clergy Conference. And I've talked about the conference in other episodes. So there, most of my listeners are familiar with it. And you were there with one of the ministries that you represent. But were you there in a couple of different capacities also? I thought I saw you teach a workshop. Yeah, so my, my colleague, uh, Reverend Greg Arthur, he and I uh, led a workshop together as well as there representing Free the Girls. Your workshop, was that in conjunction with Free the Girls or was it just a completely different subject matter? It, it definitely intersects. It's kind of what um, where our organization is heading and leading towards um, in the next several years. Um, but its overall theme of it works for any kind of ministry or nonprofit work. It was about, Greg titled it, it said, how not to be that church, how to do cross-cultural work well. And so not that we are complete experts and do it perfectly all the time, but we have learned a lot about entering into other people's spaces, other cultures, and really trying to do it well. Right. Free the Girls is the ministry that you, um, you're the director of international programming. 
And so obviously you have a big hand in in the international aspect. So how long have you been there? Like, how did that come about? How did you end up at Free the Girls? So what Free the Girls does is we uh, partner with organizations that are on the ground in other countries. And I'm sure we'll get into more about what Free the Girls is later. We partner with organizations that are working in the developing world in the anti-trafficking or counter-trafficking space. So my husband and I, uh, we actually lived over in Uganda for about four years doing various types of humanitarian work and ministries. I was actually the program partner in Uganda uh, with the organization that I helped run that was a counter-trafficking organization. And then when my husband and I transitioned back to the States, uh, the current executive director, was, who was also uh, one of our co-founders, she was transitioning off as staff and just going on to the board. It was her time. And they reached out to me and said, hey, right on the street as you're moving back to the States. You already know the program. You know, would you be interested in applying? And I said, yes, absolutely. So I actually operated in the position of executive director from uh, 2015 up until the beginning of this year. Last year, there was just, with my education, with my focus, with my experience, there was so much more that I was wanting to do on the international programming side. Running a nonprofit, you have a lot of the admin things and the fundraising and, you know, donor relations and all of these other things that it was becoming too much. And so I went to the board and asked if we could do something a little unusual and move to a co-leadership position. And this is when uh, Greg, Reverend Greg Arthur, who has been involved with Free the Girls from the very beginning, he stepped up. And so he and I are co-leaders in this now where he is getting to focus on the health of the organization on the domestic side and you know staff development and the fundraising and the donors stuff. And I get to really focus on the international thing. And it is a little unusual having two partners, two equals doing that. And it has worked beautifully. It's been very exciting. You guys have kind of divided the, you know, divide and conquer it. As organizations grow, they have to be willing to try new things and be innovative and let's see if this is going to work or not. And whatever, you can always try something else new. Right. And adapting is such a huge thing I, uh, with any ministry. Greg had said when we were talking to the board about it, you know, this this isn't necessarily how most organizations or businesses do it. You know, they do more of the hierarchy, but we do kingdom work, right? And isn't that more about equality and about collaboration and partnership? Again, it's worked it's worked really well. There's been some very cool things happening in the last uh, six and a half months with this new co-leadership. We talk a little bit about like the backstory of Free the Girls, how that started. So with Free the Girls, it's um, it started in 2010. Our founders are Kimba Langus and Dave Terpstra. And um, Dave was getting ready to move to Mozambique to work on poverty remediation in the area. And he had been really impacted by the conversations around anti-trafficking, about human trafficking, specifically sex trafficking, and trying to figure out how can I get in? Clearly there's a need, but where is the need? There's so many people doing things already and realizing that there are so many nonprofits that are working on the quote unquote rescue um, and even rehabilitation side. But what about the reintegration? And so Free the Girls was really born out of wanting to answer the question. We know what these women are being rescued from, but what are they being rescued to? Again, the term rescue is 
It's an interesting word. It has a lot of connotation. So that's why I'm using air quotes when I say rescue. But that's that's really where we started of you have women that are coming out of these oppressive situations and they're getting therapy, they're getting the help that they need. But once that's finished, what now? What's next when you have the average age of being trafficked being 12? I mean, that means low literacy. That means no job skills you can put on a resume. The areas where we work um, are all collectivist societies as well. And so you have social stigma. I'm not going to hire her. I know who she is. I know what she's done. Plus you have debt, you have health issues, you have so many things going against you that it is incredibly difficult to survive. And so that's where, that's the free the girls niche. This, This is where we try to operate. This is where we partner with organizations that are doing the rehabilitation aspect, the helping women come out, exit out of commercial sex industry. And we get to partner with them and say, okay, you guys do what you do really, really well. And we will help with that reintegration part, the social sector to the economic sector, into churches, making sure psychologically they're healthy. All of these, all of these additional factors that influence the complexity of being a survivor. I like that aspect of the reintegration part. I'm curious then, so you're not involved in the actual rescuing. They're helping these women in the immediate, in the acute stages of we are exiting out. And then they're the ones who do the referrals to us. These women are ready. These not quite yet. And so we really work with the individuals, the organizations that are on the ground. We're never going to know sitting here in the U.S., right? And really get to to work with them to be able to craft what the specific needs are for this population. How do you do that networking aspect, right? Like I think about how I network in my community to reach people for Christ. So your networking, though, has got to be a little bit different. What does that look like? How do you network? You know, once you know somebody, the network is, is smaller than it looks like from the outside, right? I mean, the, the international anti-trafficking world, it's big, but it's also pretty small. Everybody knows somebody. Hey, have you talked to this person that's in this country? Hey, do you know this person? So there's a lot of that. We do get some cold calls from organizations that are like, heard about what you've done. Is there any way we can partner? Things like that as well. There is some vetting, making sure, you know, that our partners are trauma-informed, that they have success rates, that that they're doing really good work, you know, solid work, sustainable work. The very last thing we want to do is come in and promise the women that are in our program hopes of a successful future and not be able to follow through on that. So before we launch a new program partnership, there is a lot that goes into viability studies and interviewing the partners and just making sure that it's a really good fit with us and then that we can actually carry out the work that we do. Economic empowerment is a big piece of what we do. And so looking at, okay, do one of the do one of the initiatives that we already have, is that going to work here? Or do we need to develop something else? How many women can we help? What are the costs? You know, all of these different things go into launching new programs, uh, new partnerships, things like that. You know, I think there's such a disconnect between the church and the nonprofit world. Like even understanding how any of that works, I think is so foreign to the average, the average pastor in the States, and then really for the average layperson, even more so. My guess is probably the average person sitting in a pew and the average pastor is, let's think about Pretty Woman. The two movies or films that I mentioned and a lot of 
anti-trafficking people mentioned are pretty woman and taken. That those are the two extreme. That it's either, oh, she wants to be, like, she's just down on her luck, but, you know, it could turn out well. Like, she's okay. She's not super traumatized. She's She's got some, you know, some people won't, like, let her buy things, but that's not terrible. Or it's taken. Conventionally attractive American girl goes and is kidnapped and sold on the black market and th- that type of thing. Whereas what trafficking really looks like what it actually looks like is something much much different and and what it looks like overseas and internationally also looks very different than what it looks like here in the states in in the u.s it's i think it's over 85 percent of those that are trafficked no they're traffickers so familial or a, a romantic partner things like that you know there's there's a grooming aspect um the other thing that we need to remember is that a lot of trafficking victims do not self-identify as victims, right? I mean, it's it's very similar to almost domestic violence in, in that case, right? He's not a great partner, but he loves protecting me. He's doing this type of stuff. And so the average person or clergy, you know, who is thinking is going to miss the mark of what's actually happening, where it could be happening in your church with a teenager, you know, there could be buyers sitting within your pews that, you know, that you're unaware of. Um, And so it's, it's more, it's more pervasive than we think. It's heavy. It is heavy. Um, (laughs) It is a heavy subject. Is this what you originally went into? Our counselors. So we had to talk about everything when I was growing up. So inevitably I ended up with a bachelor's in psychology and I actually got really burnt out on it. And so I went for a master's in English literature of all things. Uh, I will say, though, two years just reading literature, I feel like taught me more about the human condition and the human psyche than any textbook. And after I graduated with my master's, I went to Uganda for the first time. It was while I was there that I really felt convicted of to whom much is given, much is expected. You have the ability to do something. I think literature teachers are necessary. I think it's needed. Absolutely. But I feel like for me, it would have been selfish to do that. I feel like saying with your background, with your experience, especially having lived and traveled overseas so much, you have to do something more. And so um, when I came from, it was a three month stint that I spent in Uganda that first time. And when I came back, that's when I enrolled in a doctoral program for psychology to continue my education um, on how culture affects our behaviors and our choices which led to my eventual dissertation topic and research topic was how stress and trauma are conceptualized internationally, which segues very well into Free the Girls and where we are headed and kind of what we're laying the groundwork for doing now. Looking at language, looking at the perspective, uh, the lived experiences of, of individuals. My dissertation topic specifically was on conceptualizing stress and trauma in a culture that had no vernacular word for stress or trauma. So if you don't even have a word for it, how are you thinking about it? How are you communicating? That just got me very, very curious and interested. And from there on, I have talked to a variety of individuals. I have yet to find a single vernacular language on the entire continent of Africa that has a word for stress or trauma. It's usually just brought in from the English. Um, And that's just led me to other things as well. Spanish, for instance, doesn't have a word for grief or mourning. It's physical pain. So if the way they're communicating about it is influencing the way they're experiencing it, 
why in the world are we using our very Western, very individualistic concepts and trying to create initiatives and programs that are going to work in cultures that are completely different and shove their experiences into our little framework without actually taking the time to ask, well, how do you experience this? What do you need? What does healing and wholeness look like to you as opposed to what I think it should look like for you? How, how do you even have that conversation? Do you like paint a picture of what? And just asking, tell me your story. I spoke about this in the workshop that we did at, at the conference. The framework that I use is called the loot model. And so what you're looking at is stories lived, untold stories, unheard stories, untellable stories, unknowable stories, stories told and storytelling. And you look at the tension between those because a story lived might not be the story that's being told or a story told might not be the story that's being heard. Oh, and it works on so many levels, not just internationally. Like you want to talk to your high schooler or middle schooler, be like, what's happening in between that I, what are you not telling me? What am I not hearing? What is unknowable right now? And so, and then just asking for clarification. It doesn't matter what person you're talking to, what culture they come from. They know bad things happen. So talk to me about bad things. Talk to me about hard things because some cultures differentiate between bad and hard. And through that, you can also see, are they using the word stress? Are they the word trauma in English? Oh, that's interesting you say that. What does that mean to you? What does that look like? Um, and sometimes it can be very scary to ask somebody, you know, how do you experience anxiety, right? But say, can you describe a time in which you saw somebody else? have anxiety? What did that look like? And, and, and just working through that, you start to see a picture. Oh, okay. This is the cultural framework. And there's a lot. Basically, I just ask questions. That's all I do. I'm super nosy. I just ask questions and put it into a narrative. And what's been very interesting and also very sad is so many people are like, no one's ever asked me that. I have no idea. And they're having to stop and think through well, what does, what do I mean? How do I define wholeness? What does healing look like? Right? I mean, these are questions that everybody should get a chance to answer. And they're questions we should all be asking as pastors that we should be asking or our congregations as well. And, but the other thing I was thinking of is just the missional aspect here for the church and the state. We have to start thinking like missionaries we should have been doing that years ago, but with the pandemic, it just intensified it more. And so are those the kind of conversations we're having with people who don't know Christ, who are exploring their faith? Instead of just saying, here's what you should believe, let's talk about, well, what do you believe and how can we walk with you through that? How is faith integrated into your ministry faith-based organization. Um, some of these women have had religion as a part of their trauma. And so the last thing we want to do is, nope, you have to go to church when that's kind of what their trafficker said, right? So we do not force that on anybody. But we are faith-based. We believe that true freedom comes from knowing our belovedness and our within Christ. True freedom is found in, in Jesus. And so how do we share that? Treating people with dignity and approaching people with humility is definitely a thing I think our faith brings to the work that we do. And, you know, we, we do have women who identify as, um, as Muslim, um, those who have delved into some traditional animism type of 
practices and others who just have no idea. But when we approach it, we're very, God is love. God loves you. God created you and he created you for love. So we have not yet had anybody freak out on us or walk away or get angry, right? And it's, you know, we're going to pray. You're welcome to pray. You don't have to. There's zero pressure in any of this through the work, through just being present. They know we're here because of Christ. Traffickers controlled your life. We as an organization and in ministry are not going to control your life by making you jump through a bunch of hoops and requirements, which is just going to be reminiscent of what you're trying to get out of. It sounds harsh, but it's the reality. No, I totally agree. You have to take that approach. Walking in and asking questions and being curious about that as opposed to, I know everything and let me fix it all. Uh, Yeah. God is already flourishing and see what you can do to, we all learn from different perspectives. So how can I supplement this? How can I help grow what's already there, right? Just not walking in somewhere assuming the spirit has never been there. (laughs) Okay, can we talk about the bra campaign? I I, I applaud you. 30 minutes in, no bras have been mentioned. That's impressive. Um, There's a lot more to this ministry than just bras. But at some point, we have to talk about the bras. This will be the point where all the men will be like, I'm done with the episode. Your wives and your daughters wear them. It's okay. We can have that conversation. So I want to talk about what is this program. So these bras become the inventory for these women to sell in their local markets. They set up micro enterprises selling in their secondhand clothing market. Why bras? I know it's always, always the question. A couple different reasons. They make really good money. So the areas where we work, this is part of the viability studies and the, you know, the research that we do going in. A a woman in El Salvador pre-pandemic only had to sell four a day to make a livable wage, not minimum wage, a livable wage. And so I mean, think about the flexibility that brings as well. If you have children in school, if you're working on sobriety counseling or trauma therapy or, you know, all these other things, you get the flexibility to decide when you're going to sell. The other thing is bras, you're primarily selling to other women. And transaction of money can be a trigger for women coming out of commercial sex, out of prostitution. And so this way they don't have to interact in any financial transaction with a man until, you know, while they're in the program, while they're selling to other women, which allows them the space to feel safe. And it allows them to figure out who is a safe man? How do I interact in this, in this sphere in an appropriate way? How do I know I'm not being taken advantage of all of these things? So in no way are we saying men are bad, don't interact with men. We are giving them the space to figure that out, to relearn how to, how to interact with men, especially in an economic transactional type of way. The, the pushback is always bras, but bras are breasts and breasts are sexualized. They're not sexualized in all places of the world. And so that's one of the things that we do with research is, is this triggering? Is this, you know, what, what do bras and breasts kind of signify? It, was that a part of your oppression? Was that a part of your trafficking and your exploitation? Um, and if it is, we're not going to do that program there, right? I mean, there's just, there's layer upon layer of that. And all of the Mm -hmm. places where we've gone, we've had to explain the pun of the name Free the Girls, and they think it's hilarious. They're like, this is funny. And so it's almost empowering to them as well. Like they're in on a little joke, right? And so it's it's interesting how, you know, here in the States, burning bras was, you know, quote unquote liberation. And now these women are selling bras as a part of their quote unquote liberation. And it's it's definitely interesting. But Bras are something that you don't find a lot in the secondhand uh, clothing markets. They're either really bad quality, way too expensive for the average person 
to buy. And so we received the bras at our collection site in Indiana. You know, we have staff members and volunteers who sort through them all to make sure that they are good quality, that they can make the money that the women need in order to, again, survive as survivors. So this has been our primary economic empowerment piece since the beginning in 2010. It is a unique initiative for sure. CNN did a documentary, Mozambique or bust, all the puns. <laughs> yep. And, and where it works, it works really well. However, there are challenges. Uh, can't import in some places and um, other locations. The market is already saturated, right? Think about Southeast Asia, where a lot of bras are already manufactured. You can buy quality bras that are there. So that means, you know, our program is not going to work. You have other places such as India or Nepal, where wearing bras, especially of the secondhand variety, it, it's culturally not as, um, it, it's not done as much. It's not as frequent. And so the demand isn't there. So you have to look at this beautiful, everything has to align. If we can import used, um, there is a demand, but not a supply. And that we do have, back to our earlier conversation, that we have really good partners that are there doing ethical, transparent work. And so because of that, reintegration means more than just than just the economic piece. Also, women need economic empowerment as they're transitioning right. out of prostitution, even if we can't import. So what are the other things that we can be doing? And this is really what kind of drove the conversation with our board last year of let's let's divide into a co-leadership thing so that I can devote more of my time on what else, what additional things can we do in the places where our bra selling model doesn't work? What other type of economic empowerment pieces are there or social things? What what else can we do? Because again, the reintegration side of counter-trafficking is not nearly as robust as the other aspects of victim services. Glad that your organization has made that decision to work on all those other pieces as well. I love that aspect of empowering them by enabling them to sell to other women if people wanted to get involved, actually reaching out to our monthly givers, our seed collective, that's how we found the connection to launch our Mexico program. It was somebody that was um, that was a monthly giver, was a seed collective member, and she she connected us to the right people and did all sorts of stuff. So um, you guys get the inside scoop and get to really invest long term. The process takes a long time again to survive as a survivor is incredibly challenging and difficult. And so it's not an easy, you have two years or it takes this amount, this this much money to reintegrate a woman. Every woman's trauma is different. Everyone's experience is different. And so we are committed to walking with them long-term. And those who do decide to donate financially are, are partnering with us. They are doing this work as well of believing in Believing that a woman's past should not dictate her future and really giving her the freedom and the ability to make her own choices uh, as to as to what lies ahead. Also, we love just having people interested. If you live in the Indiana, Chicagoland area and you want to sort thousands of bras, we do that. So, I mean, it's actually really fun. The first time I walked into a bra sorting packing party. I had never seen so many bras in my entire life. I was like, oh my goodness. And you get over it real fast. Uh, you, are, um, you are bilingual and you want to do translation for us. Use or leverage if you are somebody in the counter-trafficking world or you know somebody who is and you want to do some of those referrals or networking. Business, uh, church, any group of people who want to learn more about human trafficking, 
HT101, what the complexity of survivorship looks like, the intersection between commercial sex and sex trafficking, because they overlap in some aspects and in other areas, they're different. We can come and do a training, you know, whether in person or online, like we just, this is a global problem and it needs a global solution and everybody has a part to play. Right. I think that's great that you do the trainings. As we've come through the pandemic, advice for clergy? I'd say the number one thing is approach with humility and curiosity, right? Ask the questions, especially ask questions of the individuals that you're trying to serve, you know, in this nonprofit uh, capacity or those that you, uh, whatever issue you have a big heart for, ask. Like I said, I just ask a lot of questions all the time and it's, it's inevitable. Every time I go into a situation assuming like, oh, for sure I'm going to find this. This is what's going to be. I'm always wrong. And I kind of love it because there's always something to learn and when you are completely wrong, you get to actually see the other person for who they are. Clergy wanting to transition or anyone wanting to transition into the nonprofit world, see who's already there doing the work unseen, unheard, because oftentimes it's it's those people that are doing the hard, holy, sacred work day in and day out. Approach with questions and humility and in curiosity. And third, take care of yourself. Just like, I mean, I know ministry burnout is huge amongst amongst clergy. Um, it is in the in the nonprofit sector as well, and so make sure that you that you care for your own soul um, and that you don't take on the burden of every person that you are interacting mm-hmm. with. That you are able to give it to God at the end of the day, and to be joyful even in the hard times, even in the times of mourning, that you get to co labor with Christ, and that the responsibility does not land squarely on your shoulders. Right. Remember, we're not God. Ever it is that God has really placed on your heart, you have a space to do good. You have a space to help make the world a better place. And so please don't feel unequipped. Also try to be equipped in the work that you do want to do. I mean, (laughs) you know, I do say you want to be an anti-trafficking. That's great. Don't move to Cambodia and bust down like brothel doors. You probably should not do that unless you're a Cambodian police officer. Right. Um, And so make sure that you are operating in a space that is giving you joy and that is that is helping in the long term, not just the immediate, but but the sustainable aspect of this earth for a reason. And we need you. I think that's a good word to end with. Thank you. 